Hi, my name is Tracy G and I'm an inner work coach, NLP trainer and podcaster extraordinaire. Passionate about equality and a world that is more diverse and inclusive, giving each and every one of us the opportunity to be the best version of ourselves. As a biracial woman, I've experienced my fair share of discrimination in the past and come out on top. We all know that discrimination and bias still exists in the world today, and it's not always easy to know what to do about it. This podcast, All One Inclusive, is about celebrating all diversity and being proud of all that you are. I chat with inspiring guests and my friends as we share stories from news sources and listeners from all over the world who have experienced some form of discrimination firsthand. The aim is for us to be able to discuss this issue more openly so it becomes better understood by all and provide tips about what you can do to make a difference. The world may have a lot of catching up to do, but if we can imagine a more equal world, we can create change step by step, ripple by ripple. Oh, happy hump day. Lovely Hello, Heather. Tracy. How I are just, we? How's your week been? You went um, to Mardi Gras, didn't you? I did go to Mardi Gras. Um, it was amazing. I loved it. Uh, it was a bit of a last minute decision. I went with my friend um, and her daughter, her daughter's first Mardi Gras. Her daughter really, really, really wanted to go. She really, she want, loves to celebrate um, the whole LBGTQI+. Um, as she's discovering her own a sexual identity as she grows up so it's a big deal for her and I really want to go along and support her so that was really cool and it's an amazing experience because um it was confined to uh an uh an event before as in it wasn't a parade because of covid it hadn't been a parade last year and maybe right. the year before it's the first time it's, since the covid stuff that it's been back on the street on oh, the street, street. So right. it's a massive back yes massive comeback well that's great and i'm i'm sure the community basically obviously donned their feathers and the sea queens and i'm sure it was a massive show it was massive there's so much police there i have to say um blocking off all the roads it took us a while to get onto oxford street and then it, we were like 10 people deep so I couldn't see much, unfortunately. So but the, more, great, more a great experience. And obviously, you know, your, your, your friend's daughter. How old yeah. is your friend's daughter? 11. 11 years old. That's an amazing experience to have at 11 years old. I mean, if we go back to when we were both 11, Tracy, you know, what kind of what kind of parades did we have? I know. Nothing I mean, like that. I mean, I remember like growing up in Coventry. I think uh, we had uh, every year there was a Coventry City Festival on a Saturday afternoon, which had floats. Um, but that was as far as it went. It wasn't anything like Mardi Gras, but can you imagine if we had Mardi Gras? That would be awesome. In our streets when we were 11. I don't, don't even do it in the streets where I grew up now. Never mind that. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. So there's a long way to go then there. Are we talking streets of Blackburn here? Yeah, we are. Yeah, it's nothing like that. I think I have to say, I have to say in Coventry's defence, um, I think they, they have been um, putting on more events. Um, maybe not so much, obviously, on the scale of Mardi Gras, but I think they were actually voted um, the best town centre in England or something a few years ago. So um, so community is very important to them, and I'm flying that Coventry flag high. Okay, well, we'll leave it there then. 
yes, maybe we should. It is Coventry after all. Leave it there at full mast. <laughs> all right. Well, we were looking for some inspiration um this week. I mean, Mardi Gras is like in the past now, as in as far as listening to this podcast. But you know, the what's the word? I don't want to say fight. The cause goes on. The cause. The cause continues, and you've got the story to reflect that. But what I was really excited to see in the news that I'm going to read is this story in the Guardian, and it's actually probably in other news sources. But in the Guardian, um, there's this amazing story about Jason Arday. Okay, tell me more about Jason Arday. Jason Arday is to become the youngest ever black professor at Cambridge. And young, as in younger than me and you, love. Today is a 37-year-old, he's a sociologist, and he aims to inspire others from disadvantaged and underrepresented backgrounds. And it's not only, not only is it like, oh my God, first ever Black professor at a, such a prestigious institution. That's impressive in itself. You might jump to conclusions like, oh, I obviously went to private school, the best education, came from a, you know, a well-off background. You might think along those lines and you'd be wrong. He was unable to read and write until the age of 18. And he was working part-time in Sainsbury's less than eight years ago. No way. Yes, way. Oh, I love this story. Yeah. And he's now about to become one of the youngest black professors ever appointed at the University of Cambridge in the UK. Well, you know, first of all, I, I actually, when you were just reading that out now, I was thinking to myself, and this is an assumption, I just assumed that there'd be black professors. At Cambridge. I just assumed there'd be black professors at Cambridge. So I'm actually, first of all, I'm surprised that this is the first black professor at Cambridge. Like, where, where, where are the other black professors? Why haven't there been any before at Cambridge? Hmm. And secondly, um, like, how did that happen? It's so impressive that the first black professor at Cambridge is actually 37 years old. Youngest. So, big up to Sainsbury's. They're training <laughs> good, aren't they? <laughs> it was, yeah, he, he learned everything he knew from his, his job at Sainsbury's. I yeah. bet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The training ground was at Sainsbury's. Yeah, it doesn't say that, by the way. <laughs> He's a highly respected scholar of race, inequality, and education. Yet at three years old, he was diagnosed with global development delay and autism spectrum disorder. So he did not learn to speak until he was 11. The next month, which will be the month this comes out in March, he, Jason O'Day, will take on the role of Professor of Sociology and Education at Cambridge. And he hopes this story, which is extraordinary, will inspire others. In fact, I think they should make a movie about him. I can totally see there's been a movie. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, me too. I mean... Who do you think we're playing? Let's go with... uh, Idris Alba, yes. Oh, oh, Idris Alba. Yeah, actually, yeah. He could get away with playing a 37-year-old, right? Yeah, he looks young. The movie would have to be like the upbringing, the you know the backstory. So yeah. they'd probably have to be a young black actor. Of course, they would. And then very young child. The day, I'm thinking maybe Idris would probably get away with playing the 37 year old professor. Yeah. Arden. Yeah, and and you know it was our idea, by the way. So anyway, <laughs> you heard it here first. To Tracy Gandu. 
<laughs> heard it here first. One of the things that took me was his journey. So after gaining two GCSEs in PE and textile, so this was after he started, actually, until the age of 11, he used sign language. Let's start with that. And he was born and raised in Clapham, South London, and he had spent a lot of his childhood with speech and language therapists. Yeah. And he was told that he would need lifelong support. And then he managed to get his GCSEs in PE, physical education, textiles. And then he studied for a BTEC. And this is what I love. You know, he did like the standard average qualifications. He didn't even have A-levels at this point, which is, you know, a, a more traditional uh, approach to higher education. A BTEC at college, he completed his first degree in PE and education studies. Mm -hmm. Um, and did some masters, PGCE, which is what you need to become a teacher. And then he did a PhD at Liverpool, John Moores University, okay. uh, and funded his studies by working part-time at Sainsbury's and Boots. Yeah, and Boots. that's why I've always been a big fan of Boots. Yeah, with Boots. So 10 years. That's incredible. What an yeah. inspirational story. That's amazing. I know, I know. And actually, it was one of his goals. It's not like it just it just happened, uh, you know, a progression and it happened. Ten years ago, whilst he was studying for his PhD, he wrote a set of personal goals on his mother's bedroom wall. The third on his list read, one day I will work at Oxford or Cambridge. Okay. And they, that's another example of manifesting. It is. And, it's like, and also, I, did, I suppose that's a spiritual approach or sorry, spiritual description, manifestation. That's a spiritual description, but it's a, on this plane thing, you know. Yes, and so and a science perspective would call that absolute dedicated focus, not taking your eye off the goal. Yeah. So how it happened, he didn't, and he didn't need to know, and he didn't know how it would happen. And that's, mm. that's part of it. But anyway... Um, the message of his story for other young people from underrepresented backgrounds is that everything is possible. And can, and can you imagine that? Um, or let's say you end up being a student at mm. Cambridge University mm. and Professor Day was your tutor, was your lecturer. Mm. You know, can you imagine the, the knowledge both in that specific area that Professor Day is, is, is teaching, but also the soft skills and how he exemplifies well it's a fantastic role model just basically amazing. it's just yeah. amazing i mean you'd, you'd feel privileged wouldn't you to have professor Arday as your tutor i would if i understood the um barriers to him getting there if i could you know really take that on board i would be very very pre impressed and and you know feeling very privileged to have him as my mentor absolutely and now, I mean, with his, with his story being out in the media, surely Cambridge University will, will obviously use it and shine a light on him. So the students that he carries through and mentors throughout his career moving forward, each and every one of them will feel so much appreciation. You'd hope so, yeah. Well, you have to see how it plays out. Mm. Uh, so he talks about then the problems in about the labour of how... Society leans on the labour of black and ethnic minority professionals and academics to do this labour un, unremunerated and unrecognised. Um, but then he talks about his research and his research, research in the past revealed that 
black and ethnic minority academics were being paid less than their white counterparts, you know, less salaries. It's interesting when all you need to do is look at salaries and do a comparison. Yeah. Something as simple as that. It talks about women of colour in particular as well um, being treated differently. It talks about a few things which are, are no surprise to me really. But then he does, you know, his aim, his goal, because his new goal, he's going to be a scholar of race, inequality in education, and he's going to contribute significantly to Cambridge's research in this area, to addressing the underrepresentation of people from socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds, especially those from Black, Asian and other minority ethnic communities. And it says his experience highlights the barriers faced by many underrepresented groups across higher education, and especially at leading universities. Cambridge has a responsibility to do everything it can to address this by creating academic spaces where everyone feels they belong. That's pretty much the story. And I was wondering, actually, do you think Oxford has any black? That was one of the questions that came to mind when you were sharing this story was in comparison I just assumed that both Oxford and Cambridge would have had black professors. And then that got me thinking about diversity in institutions like educational institutions, prestige educational institutions like Oxford and Cambridge. But even without the prestige, I was thinking maybe it's a generation thing and bear with me here. Hmm. So I was thinking to myself, well, how is it that um, Professor Ard is only the first black professor at Cambridge University and I was thinking about how that would come about and that lack of diversity only happening now Mm. and I think for me where my thought process is is that his mother and father his generation which is our which is kind of my my generation Mm. um, not that really but in my generation I don't remember seeing many 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 black teachers in my school there were certainly um, teachers of Indian background mm. and and there was even um, uh, teachers that were of European backgrounds but I never I don't recall seeing any teachers of a, a black background and I know that I mean I grew up in in the area of West Midlands maybe it was different in London whereby my age group probably had um, a black teachers in London schools but in the West Midlands in my generation when I was growing up there was a, a large black community in the West Midlands they had basically come over um, from from their home countries and they were given opportunities and encouraged um, to take up opportunities in the transport industry and so you'd get a lot of the black community in the bus industry for example mm-hmm. and that's where they dominated and maybe it's a case of you know, them not having opportunities in my generation. And it's until they have their own children where their children get the opportunities to then be able to go for jobs such as a professor at Oxford University. And maybe that's how it's now coming about that Professor Arday is probably going to be a first of many that will come to follow. Well, there's apparently 1% of UK professors are black. So he might be the first one at Cambridge, but he's not the first black professor in the UK university or in academia. So 1% are black. So that's obviously something that's been reported actually this year. 
And actually, if I think about my dad, he would have loved to have been an academic and a professor. He was at university for quite a while, various studies. And But you're right, I recognise that I don't know how many black teachers there were. Because you, you, you grew up, Tracy, in north of England. And yes. I'm yes. not familiar with that, with that demographic so much. But what was your experience like when you were at school? Did you have many, many black teachers in, in your schools? Zero. I mean, I don't know if it's a good example. Like, I mean, I was the only black kid in my primary school, never mind teacher. So I don't know if that's a good example. If you look like where you grew up, I imagine there's lots of black people because like, yeah. you know, there's a lot of um, West Indian and African immigrants. Yeah, um, a melting pot of immigrants um, mm. in Coventry, and just not in Coventry, but in, in West Midlands in total. And um, and I saw that because being an Indian child, I was being dragged from one family house to the next across the West Midlands, no excuses. And so as we were growing up, you got a real kind of um, idea about, you know, what each area was like in the West Midlands. I was never exposed to London. Um, but and so I can't comment on that side of things. But in the Midlands, even with sharing experiences as a child with my cousins who grew up in different areas in the West Midlands, we all had exposure to teachers who are of Indian descent. But there was hardly any. Actually, I think there were none black teachers. Well, you know, it's, it's obviously a changing landscape now. Um, I just say the only thing I would just remember my dad telling me is how, like, he, you know, he was educated and he, he came from Nigeria and he had friends that had really prestigious qualifications obtained in the UK. Mm -hmm. And yet they struggled to find jobs other than things, service jobs, like postman, or public transport or whatever. And he, in his opinion, that was a, about racism. Mm -hmm. So that probably has something to do with it as well. Yeah, That's yeah, nice. absolutely, absolutely. And now... We have, well, it's, it's 2023, and yeah. we have the first black professor at Cambridge. But long. So, so your, your dad, what you experienced that like you've just shared, Tracy, with your father, that would have been happening in the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. And it's now 2023. Yeah. And it's the first black professor. That's, what, 50 years on. Mm. It's incredible, isn't it? Mm. It is. It is when you think about it. It is, but how fantastic it is, yes. that um, mm. times are changing. Uh, so what story have you got for me, Val? The story that we've got today is off the back of Mardi Gras. Oh, yes. And it's an article from ABC News. And the headline reads, Sydney's World Pride and Mardi Gras shows how far we've come, but there's still a distance to go. So... Just as we were, we were just speaking now about how there's there's still so much far to go in terms of diversity in the education system with teachers and with professors. Here we've got an article from ABC News. So they've gone with the a picture of An Anthony Albanese, who's the Australian Prime Minister, um, who is marching with his family at Mardi Gras. And the article goes on to say... The article is a description of an individual's experience of being gay and how that has changed over time and how far we've come or not come. In high school in the mid-1990s, I had my first experience of homophobia. It sent me a chilling and unambiguous message not to come out. My friend who was a young trailblazer was pushed down the stairs at school after she came out as gay. I still remember the shock in that moment, the panic. 
the confusion about what had just happened, the fear that she was not safe, that I also wouldn't be safe. Being gay felt dangerous, painful. It felt like choosing to be unloved by the world around us. A year later at university, my gay friends and I were thrown out of a pub. There was no reason. No one was too drunk. No one was causing trouble. The man in charge just said he didn't want us there. We knew why. It was clear. He didn't hide it either. He felt entitled to reject us, and we felt powerless to be able to stop it once again. We like to think that these injustices are long gone, but still today I know of young people suffering homophobic abuse in the schoolyard. We hope that our schools and institutions will respond more quickly now, that parents will be brave and stand up for their kids, but it doesn't always work that way. It takes fierce advocacy often and strong leadership to turn it around. It takes under 18s, queer socials and wear it purple days, derided by some as woke, playing a pivotal role in creating a new culture of safety and inclusion. It takes constant vigilance to keep young people safe so they can be their best healthy adult selves one day. Woke, I just, this woke, I know we talked about the word woke because we, we didn't know what it meant and we had to look it up. Uh, I'm feeling, I'm getting a sense it's kind of like a dirty word now. It's almost like, a, this is what I'm getting from the word woke when it's being used sometimes in the media, that it's well-intentioned um, white people or people not affected by the issue trying in vain to help to make them look good. That's that's kind of the connotation of getting with the way that your term woke is being used. I, I, don't, mean, I, don't, I don't know what, in, you're, what you as get in, from it. As in, as in, oh, you're so woke. It's a word that's kind of, like, I suppose, it's been given its own connotation by the media and the way it's been used. It's kind of, um, yeah, it's almost been used as not an excuse, but um, yeah, I know what you're getting at. I don't, it's, a, it's hard to explain. It's just the way, it's just what I'm perceiving from how I'm hearing it being used in the media. Well, when we looked it up, it simply means, you know, someone who is aware and aware of, um, I can't even remember what we said, but I kind of got yeah. it in my head. It's, I mean, in this context, it says it's, it's actually used the word woke in speech marks. Because yeah. You say, Tracy, it's, it's a woke is being used as a word which, which you can almost hide behind, or it's almost like a label saying, oh, well, you know, I'm, um, I'm, uh, I'm being understanding. Mm. I'm giving space to, um, I'm doing what I can. Yeah, and I, I don't see anything wrong with that as long as you're not a hypocrite. I mean, it's supposed to mean you're alert to racial prejudice and discrimination, but I guess the wider use of the term is you're alert to um, wider prejudice and discrimination. You're just alert. You you know, you know it's just what do you do with that alertness? I don't think there's anything wrong with that because yeah. I think at the end of the day, everybody has to be alert and has to take action in order for things to change, whether you're directly affected by it or not, if mm. you want a, a better world to live in. So that's, I don't see this, that's the problem with the it's, it's It's kind of moving, that word woke is moving into the same kind of avenue whereby, you know how some people say, oh, I'm not racist, I've got brown friends. I'm not racist, I, I order an Indian every Friday night. <laughs> It's, I feel like we are at the risk of woke and the word where it's being used. All right. And I can see, yeah, I can see that now. Thanks. Thanks for that, Ralph. <laughs>
Thanks for that. Okay, so going, going back to the article, so um, actually with, with the article, so the article previously mentioned it takes fierce advocacy often and strong leadership to turn it around. And on that, the article does go ahead and talks about the PM's Mardi Gras message. And here it is. When Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announced he was going to march at Sydney's Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Parade this year, the first time a PM has marched, the lacklustre opposition to it told you everything you need to know about the tide shifting. When the ABC became the first to broadcast Mardi Gras in the 90s, the national outrage was at fever pitch. I remember it well. I was still in school and the message I was receiving was that there was something wrong with being gay. This time there has been some noise, but it is hardly the moral panic of the past. Barnaby Joyce criticised the Prime Minister for choosing to march in Mardi Gras on Saturday on the basis that he wasn't spending enough time in Alice Springs, where there is a youth crime surge. He also criticised Albanese for spending so much time at the tennis. That was a um, a potent political point. The image of a PM at sporting matches when there is a huge story in an impoverished community is stark. But conflating Mardi Gras and tennis, it doesn't pass the pub test. Why wouldn't a PM march in a parade that makes the city where he lives world famous? Of course, Albanese isn't the first PM to go to Mardi Gras. That was Malcolm Turnbull, who didn't march, but he was there. And it was a powerful statement at the time. Both Turnbull and Albanese represent electorates in Sydney with many queer voters. The event has become central in the New South Wales calendar. Not going would be odd given the scale of World Pride this year. And um, Albanese went uh, quoted as saying, it's unfortunate that I am the first, but this is a celebration of modern Australia, a diverse and inclusive Australia, he said. We need to be a country that respects everyone for who they are. Marching in his 35th Mardi Gras, Albanese again paid tribute to the 78ers who were thrown in jail because they happened to be gay or lesbian. We need to continue to argue for equality, he said. The thing about political leaders being at events like these is it sends a message. In the suburbs and country towns of Australia, where young people may have been flicking off Netflix and watching the TV, or at least Instagram for just a moment, they will have seen the Prime Minister standing with a group historically marginalised and vilified. That matters. Good. Does matter. Really matters. That's really good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I unfortunately didn't get to see him because I was too back in the crowd. That's a shame. I know. I was too back in the crowd to see he was there, but I'm really glad to hear he was. I think that's really important. Yeah, he was basically there. Um, he was there's a picture of him, and he's there. Um, at the, it looks like he's at a, a, the front of a crowd, um, and with some banners behind him, mm. um, some rainbow flowers behind him, um, which is great. I tell you what would have been really good though, is if he would have dressed in in sequins, the feathers. That would have really sent a message. Can you imagine the world headlines around all of this? Right? And that, that would have been amazing. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm seeing different ones, but we always get different ones anyway. I'm seeing one, it's celebrated, like in really getting involved. Or two, it's so woke and he's just he's putting on an act and it's inauthentic. Or, you know, three, being criticised by his political rivals. I can just see all of those things playing out as you, as you talk about that. 
But even if like, for example, you know, it's, if we talk about, okay, um, how can you send an authentic message that you're a politician and you're supporting this cause? I mean, I'm no, I'm no PR expert. I'm no political PR expert. But even, I suppose, you know, there is a difference between, um, you know, standing there with your family and walking through, which is fantastic, which is great. You know, but I mean, you know, maybe they could have suggested, maybe his PR company could have actually suggested maybe standing on a float, perhaps, you know, as it comes down. You know, that's that's a, that's a nice kind of compromise, nice introduction. Mm. You know, maybe he could have been waving a flag even. Yes, actually, that, I don't think that, he was. That's quite good. That's not that's not too far, you know, far now. Yeah. You know, I, think I don't think he was waving a flag. Was he waving a flag? No, he wasn't. No, I don't think he was. You know, he was not in a picture. Mm. Um, but that would have been quite good. You know, him waving the flag. You know, actually being. You know, because yes, you can walk down the road and mm. you know around around a group of supporters. Fantastic. But if you're actively holding the flag or wearing a t-shirt or wearing a rainbow garland, even yes. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm so. It's a shame that his um, PR group weren't able to push the envelope just yeah. that little bit more. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Because he was just dressed like a regular person. I mean, I'm a regular person. I'm not, I don't identify as, as gay or queer. And yet I was dressed up to celebrate, you know, I was dressed up in crazy clothes yeah. to celebrate a part and of the celebration. And you, and you weren't the only one, Tracy. You know, there's lots of people in your situation where they don't necessarily identify, you know, as, as gay or lesbian or trans or bisexual um, or any of the orientation. Um, but it's just a celebration of, of the community. And so, yeah, that I think yeah, if I was part of his PR team, I would definitely have suggested a thing. I think I would have been a bit of a dog with a bone with that one, actually. So, but yeah. can you imagine other political leaders around the world? Like, for example, let's say, for example, um, Jacinta Ardern was still in office. You know, would she have done that with New Zealand? I mean, you know, I don't know what I actually, I mean, I haven't lived in the UK whilst Rishi Sunak has been in government, but, you know, I'm, you know, I don't know whether or not he would have done the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure if, if Barack, can you imagine if Barack Obama? Oh, was, yeah. He'd, he'd do it. Yeah. You know, so you know, it's about it's about you know when it, when we're talking about politicians sending a message. Yeah, about, it could have sent it could have sent a louder message as well. It's, it's about a politician being able to be authentic by actually, um, yeah, just pushing the boat out a little bit, coming out of their comfort zone for the cause, mm. and that's what breeds and that's what shows that authenticity. Exactly. Maybe though, maybe that was as far as his comfort zone could go. Who knows? Don't know him. Yeah, that's true. Don't really know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's always a reason. So who knows? But again, good point. I think the Shikai is the the PI. Can you imagine what that would look like? (laughs) It would be the best thing they ever did. Best thing they ever did. Um, All right, we're going to change tack a little bit. It's a lot, really. But, you know, what would you do? Could have picked a few, we could have picked things related to what we've been talking about, but we don't have to, so we won't. So in this, what would you do? It's a workplace scenario. We like workplace scenarios since so many of us spend so much time there. Can you imagine you're in a debrief after a round of job interviews? So you're not being interviewed. You're a part of this committee debriefing, picking a candidate, right? You've been part of the interview process. Mm-hmm. And someone else says of a candidate that they this candidate seemed a little OCD. So my question then to you is, what would you do? 
What would you do? What would you do? I smiled then, just then. Um, that brought a huge smile to my face. The reason being is because I have actually been in this situation in real life. Oh. So uh, the situation that happened was um, I was in a role where there was a finance uh, there was a finance department um, who needed support, who needed mentorship, but also needed some processes and someone to oversee the whole of that finance department. And um, I was given the task of recruiting for this particular role. And so I'd sent out, um, I'd sent out a job description and wrote out an advert. There were so many applicants um, because it was quite a popular um, place of work. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was just sifting through these applications. I'd, um, I'd gone through so many rounds of telephone interviews and I just couldn't find um, a candidate who was meeting the expectations of the role. Until I ended up meeting and interviewing a candidate, um, a male individual. He didn't have the previous experience, ideally, that was related to this particular role. However, the previous roles that he'd worked in, um, he demonstrated transferable skills and he gave examples very well of how he had added value mm. in each of those finance areas mm. to detail. Mm. And it was in that interview and the examples that he was giving that he gave rise to my colleague in a debrief sharing with me saying Bavna I think this guy's great um he's got a b and c I liked what he did here I liked how he demonstrated this particular example one thing that that we would probably need to be mindful of is that um I think he might be OCD who said that my colleague said that to myself so I was in the interview process um I was interviewing because I would be doing the selection but I also in interviews you often have um another person with you and uh, too often debrief, but also they were acting as my assistant. Um, anyway, I always had her in my interviews, and it's always great when you when you're interviewing with another person because. Um, so this other person said they made that remark. Yes. Okay. Yes, and my response to that was, I think that's an advantage because the specific, the specific role that we have, we're failing at the moment, the department's failing at the moment, is because there isn't enough attention to detail. Mm. Processes are not being followed. That's one of the main reasons this role has come up. There, there, there's no process being implemented. There's lack of attention to detail. And we need structure. And we're, we're struggling to have the, the team members in the finance team work to these structures. If we bring in someone who is as you say, OCD, that's exactly, that, that, that's, that's a benefit. That's exactly what we play to. We basically use the fact that there's OCD here in this individual. And because let's say, for example, they, they, they take this job and the approach to that, that they bring is of a very OCD elk. That can only, that can only benefit us. Okay. So what were the characteristics that made her give it that label? The characteristics was um, when he was describing uh, his uh, the situations that he'd been in. Yeah. Uh, they were, he described it um, and he was being very meticulous and he yeah. was describing how he had been very meticulous. 
and um, and on more than one occasion he also um threw in that he is probably OCD oh he said that he he said that he probably is he said it in jest yeah at interview that's why he said it in jest right also was asked I often ask about um if I don't ask about it directly I often try to gauge what their working style is Mm. um, to establish you know, are they going to be, um, how are they, how well are they going to be fitting into the existing team? What kind of energy are we going to bring to the team? How is that, what is the dynamic they're going to bring to the role? And from that, from the, from that answer, I, I, I also um, saw that this is an individual, when it comes to dotting the I's and crossing the T's, that he, he takes it to an absolutely different level. And it was that kind of level that I was looking for, for my finance team. Okay. All right. Well, you know, I agree. This is good. This is a good um, example then. Because I agree, you know, everybody's got a different style of communicating, learning and how they work. And it sounds to me like that person was highly logical, organized and structured, which is really valuable skill for some roles. And you obviously recognize that for whatever that job was. Um, How it's a problem, which is what we talk about, is is the label. Um, Because this is why it matters. So when people casually misuse terms for real mental health issues like OCD, it trivializes the conditions and the difficulties faced by those who have them. If others with mental health issues hear comments like this, this may make them feel belittled. Um, and, I, and I agree, I've, I've misused the term OCD like as a, I've used that term until I've really you know, read more things like this, I would I have in the past used those terms to describe myself even in some scenarios. The comment could also unfairly harm the candidate's chance of getting a job as it's a vague critique that's not tied to a job requirement. And I think that's really important then to make that distinction. It's about a style of working and is nothing to do with what we think OCD actually is. And so that's how it's kind of misused. And then I guess, does that matter? He, you know, in your in your specific situation, he referred he misused the term himself. Mm. I mean, unless he's actually been diagnosed with it. So that's an interesting one because it was actually how it how it eventually uh, it was like I did give him a job, and when after he joined, I was noticing that there was a strict routine that he was following mm. to the point um, where I had to have a conversation about um, working hours and breaks and so forth. Um, wasn't anything major but it was definitely noticeable that it was almost on the dot it was like a routine like Groundhog Day and yeah and we had an open conversation about that and that's when he did actually share that he hadn't been diagnosed but that he was aware that when it comes to routine he is very particular and it makes him feel nervous when a routine is broken mm. So, and, and and again, I also, I, I actually, again, attributed that to, well, not attributed that, but I, again, suppose, saw more focus on the fact that we're in a workplace and as long as your job is being done and the fact that he, this routine that he lives by, he had implemented that in his work and we needed structure, we needed routine. And it also, it validated that I had made the best, I made the decision for the best person for this job. Yeah. Well, yeah. With the skills, we've got the right skills and they're working for the job, absolutely. But the point is about the misuse of the term mm. when it's appropriate. I think it's an interesting one because when it comes to labelling, I think I've heard labelling being thrown around a lot. 
and um and it's, it is getting a bit out of hand you know when you're talking in jest about or being OCD or even being bipolar for example I've heard that a lot and I think what's happening is that what I'm seeing now is that labels are just being misconstrued left right and center to the point where it's, it's such a blurred line mm. and it's not really being taken seriously well that's the point isn't it it's it can be perceived that way especially and even more so to someone who's suffered because of that having that disease or maybe it might not be them it might be their somebody they love or care about has had to suffer with that disease that can be debilitating and have so many negative effects on their life so to use so casually misuse so casually you can understand why that can hurt people Mm -hmm. offend make them feel belittled and then I guess this is the point that we're trying to make here but also the fact that it's a very vague critique. And, you know, I, I actually, if I think, if I'm being honest, I would ask about what they meant by that because I would want to know what characteristics led to that kind of label. And I'd be looking at the characteristics. And then knowing now what I know now, because I wouldn't have known it years ago, you know, that those characteristics point to a very specific style. Or, yeah, maybe he was diagnosed but it, with OCD, you know, I don't know, but then he would be having, the person would, they would be the ones that would have to share that um, for that to be relevant. But anyway, he says, you could ask the person that said that, um, how does that relate to the job requirements? Go either way. Or let them know the language is problematic. You might not know this, but casually calling someone OCD can be harmful to people with mental health conditions and then explain why. Um, and then you could you could take it further with HR and asking them to raise awareness about mental health issues in general. And actually, that was something that happened for me because I was a manager, a people manager. I got the opportunity to do a mental health first aid, to be trained in mental health first aid. And that led to changes in HR policies and also led to an awareness of things like that, how commonly misused and how it can make people living with other people or living with the health issue themselves feel when you misuse terms that way so that's good so you could talk to HR about training that encourages employees to use more inclusive language Uh, to me that just means not using exclusive language Um, and why it happens I suppose it's being um, considerate in the language you use full stop yeah exactly just considering the things that come out of your mouth generally but anyway full stop yeah full stop but many people are in the habit of using terms like OCD casually and inaccurately rather than in reference to the real conditions they're meant to describe in in that situation that I described you know my colleague she I can honestly say I can confidently say she called out the OCD in the debrief not with any malice not you know her intention was honourable, um, respectful, and I, I don't think she would have been. She's a considerate person, and I don't think she it would have crossed her mind. I hardly think people that use it casually and using it with any malice, anyway. Yeah, it's just because it's like saying it's like people that say I'm not racist, but yeah, most of those people are don't feel the racist and don't intentionally say or behave in a way intentionally that is racist but they don't realize it is and that's and that's the point they don't realize it is because they can't relate to that 
And it's the same if, if you don't know someone that actually has OCD or you don't have it yourself, you can't maybe understand how it's offensive to use it casually or inaccurately. Yeah. I think what my colleague was saying was that he had OCD tendencies. Mm. So, you know, is that a label? Well, you know, we're not here particularly to criticise your colleague. Your situation may have been different to what this situation is describing. And then the reason they give for why people casually use it is that maybe it's because they don't realise how likely it is that someone around them at work has a mental health condition. Maybe it's unseen, not as visible. And it talks about stats, but these stats are in the US. But I actually looked the stats up because I did a training for a company um, on mental, not, on stress specifically, on managing stress. And when I was delivering that workshop, I looked up stats on mental health uh, in Australia. So in the US, it's one in five workers have mental health conditions. But in Australia, it was very close. I think it was like one in four or one in five anyway. So it wasn't very different here. It says workers have that, but many don't disclose that at work. And it could be also because they haven't learned much about mental health issues. So that's, that's me. If anything out of that, I would promote a mental health first aid as um, something they should do in workplaces. And especially for HR, absolutely. I think HR should be mandatory. People leaders, it should I think should be mandatory, but something that should be promoted in workplaces. And that's what we get from that. But you're right. People do casually ADHD is another one that now, especially today, gets thrown around so casually. Oh, I'm a bit ADHD. I hear that a lot. It just, it just, it does make you think about, yeah, the, the silent, what would you call them? Conditions. Yeah, the silent conditions that one has in the workplace and how, mm. how somebody, uh, it, at the end of the day, it's as long as we can all be considerate with the language we use. Yeah, mm. and I guess that some people, they just don't, maybe some people think it's over the, too much or over the top and they wouldn't speak if they had to think about every word they use. I can and just imagine people um thinking that and saying that and I would just say well you know what you're not always going to get it right not always going to be able to be considerate but to be intentionally inconsiderate when you've been told this is going to offend someone that's different Mm -hmm. from unintentionally being you know from not realizing that that's offending someone that's different and so we're always going to get it wrong well, that's just the way it is. That's what life is trying to get it better next time. We can do better next time. Yeah, it's a difficult one to navigate through. Sure, all been guilty of saying something not very considerate. I mean, this is not a comparison, but I can all the time I'm not very considerate. It's because I'm somewhere else. I'm not thinking about that. I remember once, <clears throat> really not comparing comparing the two, but just thinking, when is the time being where I've been really not my considerate self? I was in a lift with my mum. <clears throat> we were getting out the lift and somebody held the door and we got out. And when we got out, my mum says, turns out to me to say, you didn't even say thank you <laughs> to me, right? She got proper telling me off. And this is me as an adult, not a child. Proper telling me off. And I'm just like, oh, no. And that's inconsiderate. 
And and I and I'm very often inconsiderate. And it's not because I'm not a considerate person, it's because I wasn't thinking, I was somewhere else. Right. Yeah, you know, somewhere else at the time. So that's a really lame, I guess a lame example, but we all have examples where we've not been considerate. Yeah. And I, I think what I'm thinking of is I've actually been in the flip side. I've been on the other side of that where I do have a silent condition. It doesn't, fortunately for me, it doesn't impact my working ability and potential. But it's there. I'd rather, I'd rather not have it escalated. And I certainly would not want my peers at work being reminded about, you know, the language that they use around this condition. It just brings more highlight to something that I would just like to get on with my job for. Yeah, but it's different if it's personal to you. That's different. If you're the one, you shouldn't have to be the one if it's about yourself. I don't know, because I don't really understand what you're talking about. But, and that's, that's another part of it. If, if it affects you directly, because this isn't, this is not a scenario where it affects them directly, shouldn't always have to be the one. It's like to educate other people. Um, and that's a separate thing from wanting to be, not identify as whatever it is. That's again, separate. That scenario about the OCD isn't talking about them, that person, a person that might have it and identifying it and being out out of work about having that condition because you're right they may not want that to be about them and who they are and that's fine this is about how you can feel when people trivialize it and they may overhear that that's that's more about what it is and it's about the misuse of using those kind of terms but it's very yeah. different from having to pull someone up on something that affects you personally and having to be the one to do that and that's the thing I think it's important to 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 note that what that what that response article is saying is that it's it's notifying it on a general level. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I said mental health first aid. It's a general thing. Um, it's about the general idea of trivializing conditions by misusing them as casual things. It's very general. Yeah. Mm. But that concludes, we have run out of time. What yeah. would you do? And as usual, very engaging. Yeah, that was a good session. Thanks, Trish. I'd love to know how your mind works and what you think of these things. So thank you. And I will be seeing you soon anyway, chatting more. Yes. Have a good week. Yes, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you have as much fun with us today as we did. If what you heard resonated with you, don't forget to show the love and like our YouTube channel, All One with Tracy G. Give us a five-star rating on whichever podcast platform is lucky enough to have this episode because they rock too. Feel free to email stories or questions at alloneinclusive at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter if updating yourself about everything which goes down sounds like something right up your alley at tracygandu.com. Until the next time, see ya!